0: Hello. As we look ahead to bringing in this new year, we're here to bring you a little more cheer, or that's one way of putting it. In last week's programme, we heard the first part of the interview, which Richard Eyre, the former BBC Trust Board member, conducted with me at the Voice of the Listener and Viewer conference. That was held in November, and the VLV supports public service broadcasting. We're going to pick up on the second part of that interview, where he puts me on the spot about something rather personal
1: you are a very unusual person in broadcast journalism in my experience in one respect in that you're out as a christian <laughs> you're a christian and the only uh, other out christian that i can recall working closely with was martin bashir so i i find kind. it i find it, <laughs> I find it difficult because i'm i'm not a, i don't have a faith i find it difficult to reconcile your commitment absolute, lifelong, proven commitment to evidence-based, factual journalism, how you square that with your faith-based commitment to life decisions. And I just wonder whether you'd like to square the circle.
0: No, but I'll try. I mean, it depends what you mean by Christian. Just as I would see, the BBC is a means to an end. The end is public service broadcasting. It's a means to an end. The church is a means to an end. So, uh, yeah, I try to follow Jesus. And that's why I call myself Christian. And I'm not sure about a massive other things. But I think one of the things I most admired about is not just Christianity, that it regards every individual soul as being equally worthwhile in principle. And if you take that view, then I don't think, you, well, you can't do the John Stuart, it was John Stuart's largest, you know. It comes down to Gibraltar, everything, every, you know, every every individual matters, every individual has been a tri, a child, et cetera, et cetera. And so I suppose to that extent uh, that, that in fa- affected me. The other thing is that, and it was also Malcolm Murgish affected you, Christianity makes you ask the question, why? And that is the most interesting question. And so I suppose that's another thing. But what you can't be, you can't be a Christian journalist. You can be a journalist who might be a Christian, you mean journalists might be a Muslim or a Jew or whatever, but the journalism has to come first. But it is informed by who you are. But for you to show preference to your anything to do with your faith would be wrong, except insofar as you regard as everybody as fundamentally equal. So when you hear appalling things said in certain circumstances about terrorists and others, you know, you think, What made them? Why are they like that? They didn't start off like that. So you want to find why. But I I suppose, and also the church has such an appalling record almost everywhere in many ways, but it's the man-made element. I joined the BBC when I was 21. I think I joined it as an alternative to joining the church. I think I had an unrealistic expectation of it in terms of what it was and what it could be. And I remember my eyes being opened. The Edinburgh Television Festival to realize that colleagues in World in Action and elsewhere and ITN and whatever were doing the same job, absolutely, and committed to the same things, and how absurd it was to suggest they weren't part of public service broadcasting. But I still believed, and I believe now, that the BBC is the best means to an end, but it's a means. But ultimately, I don't know whether this is true about Christianity, but you think everybody has to realize that they are, and every leader, they aren't in temporary charge. We're all in temporary charge of whatever we are. And what are you handing on? And have you, in the end, compromised? I you know, I had a great ability to confuse public interest with my private interest for large parts of my life. <laughs> Don't we all? But uh, but I, at least I tried to be aware of it. And that was a confused answer. Sorry.
1: If you were in two minds as to whether to get into public service broadcasting or the church, oh. and you've just said there was much in your view much wrong with the with the churches uh do you think you made the right decision
0: i'd have been a rotten priest the thing that attracted me i realized was the prospect of standing up in the pulpit and lecturing to people and i think that's a...
1: <laughs> this is your opportunity however um, we must I've take you enough we must take questions from the floor Hello, I'm Linda Rattigan. What you were saying about Brexit, would you say the same thing applies to the climate with BBC? I'm not sure the
0: same thing, but I think that, um, well, we're into impartiality, due impartiality, and this gentleman knows more than me. I think one of the key things is to, first of all, recognise your own bias and to recognise the biases implicit in the organisations in which you work. You know, I think people who work in the BBC inevitably are going to be more liberal than most because if you have very powerful, strong views, you may end up working for political parties and elsewhere. So you have to recognize your inbuilt bias. You have to recognize, for example, if, you're, if the majority of your producers are young people, there'll be an age yeah. bias. So the question is first of all, look at yourself, look at the organization, the bias, and then you look out, having looked at that, try and look at uh, trying to ensure you're properly impartial. But I don't think you need to be impartial about the questions you ask. You know, what happens often with a political debate, as you know, and it's happening now with the gender debate, is people try to conquer. No, they try to own the language because they feel that if they can get their their interpretation of language or their words used, it will prejudice the debate in their favor. They tend to frame the debate in that way. And they also try the focus of the debate is also focused on what is most advantageous to their position. And so you, this is a natural part of politics that you recognise. So I saw or thought that one of the key roles is to focus on what is not focused upon, but is it important? Now, when it comes to impartiality, it seems to me that with, with climate change, we've moved through a period where there was a, a reasonable debate to a situation where the majority, the vast, vast, vast majorities of who are experts in a particular field have come down to a conclusion about climate change and the very significant role of a man-made element in that. There's an argument then that debates, which should be debated, about what you then do about it. But in terms of the science, I would have thought impartiality should not now require you to say the argument is open. Now, we come to Brexit...
1: Uh, the vast majority of the experts, yeah. in terms of economics, forecast that Brexit would be disadvantageous.
0: Yes. But uh, you're
1: not saying, are you, that the BBC and other public service broadcasters didn't have a duty to be impartial in its coverage? Yeah, due of... to
0: impartiality, but I think we have, uh, on Brexit, I think, as I say to you, I think the framing of the debate. I mean, for example, the BBC, in my view, should have devoted a whole programme to the meaning of sovereignty. There was a term that was used all the time in the debate. it has an emotional resonance, and most of us haven't really thought it through about what does sovereignty mean? Does it mean uh, and when is shared sovereignty a sharing uh, an increase of sovereignty? That was a role of, as essential public relation, a public educational role in my view. The BBC should have got into and it didn't. I think there are lots of signs it's doing more than this. But I think it's interesting now about Brexit in the short term, and it's a relatively short term. And of course, COVID is there. At least the view of the Office of Budget Responsibility and so on is that Brexit has been extremely damaging. And you see the latest forecasts show that of all the OECD countries, we're going to be the only ones in recession and elsewhere. And I don't think it's a coincidence. In the longer term, I don't know how the longer term, maybe you can't do, but you can make a judgment now to say that the, the economic benefits of Brexit that should have occurred have not. And you can also say we have an aging population and we are going to face a choice if we don't have significant levels of at least skilled immigration are becoming significantly poorer and with the younger part of our population paying very heavily to maintain an elderly population you can do all of these things and say them without having to say
1: which policy is right all of which may be true but the question wasn't actually about brexit it was um, uh, uh, about climate change but you're not going to answer it because we're going to take another question Do you think the BBC sometimes responds to groups that shout loudest or get themselves make themselves heard most? And also, into the question about wokeness, metropolitan, which seems to be two sides of the other thing. It's very interesting. I mean, if you're cynical, I'm not saying I believe it, it's just that uh, if you look, for instance, at diversity, it seems to be very much reflecting diversity of the of, of the capital. Uh, then, of course, they're saying, um, "Ah, but what about the regions?" It seems the BBC is in a very difficult position. I don't know what they do, but sometimes I wish. They should. They stand back a bit and say, "Well, what exactly is diversity? What exactly are these regions?" I go on on say various things. It's very interesting if you look at something from twenty years back, thirty years back. There are issues. There are other. There is very much. There, there are other areas, you know, which seem to be very much what's in vogue, and these things do change over time.
0: I think mean, that's true, and I think minorities change. And I think one of the things that Channel Four, for example, needs to do is to rethink what diversity is. It's a locked a view of diversity, I think, which is maybe 20 to 30 years out of date. But then I think the BBC also has to rethink what public service is. It's not just what it does. And increasingly, in my view, by the BBC, they're having to prepare for a commercial future, which I don't honestly care about. I don't care about commercial BBC that much because the market's pretty effective. I care about the non-commercial element of the BBC and public service, and what's the best way to achieve public service in those times. When it goes back to the question of shouting loudest, it's more a question of visually imaginative. I mean, you know, if you've got a... Just think back to Fred Dibner blowing down his chimneys, irresistible for a last item on the news. (laughs) We all want to watch it. How could you refuse? As pressure groups have got more... Clever. they think of you know, more ways of creating a news story it may not be loud but it's usually visual are they going to throw paint on a van gogh or what are they doing are they going to stay? there's a continued battle between pressure groups trying to create events that they feel the broadcasters have to follow and broadcasters thinking well a bit like carry Moore in a way it's happening isn't it is yeah. but is it really what's it representative of of course, then you get into the argument I know some people made that a large number of anti Brexit demonstrations in London weren't reported, despite their numbers. And those who felt passionately about that So look at these numbers, why are you not reporting it? But there were other demonstrations elsewhere and so on. There's always going to be that battle between very brilliant public relations people leading for a cause and trying to manipulate, knowing the, and trying to manipulate. The government, but that has always gone on, it goes on with politics uh, all the time. Why do ministers often prefer to be interviewed on the Today program at about six minutes to eight? Because they know they all, the, of the interview can't go on go on more than four or five minutes, or you know, and that's why the poor weather forecast. I say, oh, I was going to do that in two minutes, I'm doing that in a minute, 20, 30 seconds, but at least you know I, I'm there. It's a continual, I, I, so I think you've got to be aware of it as a broadcaster and not fall into the trap, but you can't say. If an event happens and it's got a massive support, you need to report it in some form, but the prominence you give it. And the fundamental problem, as you know, with news, and he knows better than I do, we did it all the time, is for everything you put in, you have to take something out.
1: Yeah, and also news, there is a difference in the way you approach commissioning serious programming and, and making decisions about what's in a news bulletin, because if you're editing a television news bulletin, pictures are important and pictures can make a news story, and perhaps in a less obvious way, but if you're editing a radio bulletin, sounds are more important to you than they would be on television if somebody ever invents uh, when i was a kid people used to talk about inventing smelly vision it hasn't happened but if they did then smell would be important as part of a news story and a really smelly story would get a greater prominence on smelly vision than than on other media i see my old um, nine o'clock news editor mark Mm damas at the back sniffing at that prospect he's a, a, a purist i think i saw another hand shoot up is the concept of having to inform educate and entertain outdated I
0: don't think it's outdated but I think parts of it are less important uh this is why I do believe that the future public service broadcasting should not be left to the BBC and should not be left to the BBC's timetable you heard earlier them making the case that uh, I think Roderick that it wasn't quite the time for a proper debate I think the debate I start should start now it's absurd to suggest the BBC is operating in an environment remotely like the one when it was invented, but it was the only broadcaster and the only television channel. It's totally different in the last 20 years. So I think there are legitimate questions to be asked about whether, for example, the BBC should be is he doing things like the English. I don't know if you've watched the English and so on. What the BBC is now doing is, in my view, is taking a set of decisions without consultation, which many people would disagree with because it's doing salami slicing, because it wishes to avoid the very, very difficult arguments about what it should or should not be doing. The answer is cut down. So you hide the cuts. BBC Radio has hidden, and Radio 4 has hidden, essentially, over the last four or five years, the nature of the cuts that have been made. And if you listen to them, you can hear less reporting, (laughs) less voices, people less troubling. You've looked at what happened local radio. Um, I'm still not clear whether when Roderick was saying the same amount of money was being spent on local radio, he meant that in real terms or not, because you'd spend the same amount of money and inflation goes up, they'll tell me whether that's true or not. But it is undeniable that local radio only works as local radio, and it will become regional radio at two o'clock in the afternoon, and on Saturdays and so on, it'll become national radio. Why? The BBC will always put up people like Rodri, really good, decent people to explain, but the fact is that decision has been taken because they wouldn't take other decisions. They're cutting the World Service, they're cutting local radio, they've been cutting Radio 4, they've put BBC 4 online, at which point has anybody been consulted? Now, I'm not arguing that the BBC has to consult about everything because it wouldn't get anything done, but at the very least it should be putting out some sort of work-through manifesto which states what it's trying to do, not hiding what he's trying to do, and have meaningful consultation. And meaningful consultation means the possibility of change. Otherwise, it's a classic BBC popular consultation in which they decide what to do, get the PR lined up, tell you what they're going to do and do it. That's not consultation. So on the one hand, you need a decisive BBC. But on the other hand, you need one which is much more open and is honest about what's happening. And I'd say just one final thing, and I'm trying to show me up. The idea that the Labour Party, if it comes into power in two years' time, will massively increase spending on the BBC is for the birds. And that's it for this week. As we enter the new year, please do consider supporting our journalism and to ensure our survival for just £1.99 per month. You'll find the link uh, to subscribe on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. Please do consider doing this. And next week I'll be talking to Sir Peter Basiljet. He's responsible for shows such as Big Brother, Changing Rooms and Ready Steady Cook, who's just recently stepped down as chair of ITV. And he has plenty to say about public service broadcasting and the existential crisis he says it faces. Until then. May I wish you a very happy New Year. Goodbye.